Momentum HSS, a podcast where we explore the diverse present and future trends of the humanities and social sciences. This is your host, Darby Orcutt. I am a librarian, teaching faculty, and researcher at NC State University, and adjunct faculty at the School of Information and Library Science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. My guests on this podcast are an amazing array, including associational leaders, funders, and scholars with deep background in the themes we'll be discussing. Please feel free to listen to episodes in any order that makes sense to you. And as you feel moved, I hope you'll reach out via Twitter, at Darby underscore librarian, or more privately via email at dcorcut at ncsu.edu. As always, I hope you'll be as I am, inspired, encouraged, challenged, and changed by what you're about to hear. I'm very pleased to welcome as my guest for this episode, Wendy Noss. Wendy became the fourth executive director of COSA, the Consortium of Social Science Associations in 2014, following a decade of lobbying for the federal research and policy interest of scientific societies and US universities. Over her career, she has worked to shape legislation, programs, and regulations important to the research community and has advocated for increased research funding across federal agencies. In her role at COSA, Wendy serves as the lead advocate for federal funding and policy that positively impact social and behavioral science research across the federal government, representing the breadth of the social science research enterprise. Welcome, Wendy. I'd like to start out our conversation with an holistic, maybe definitional approach to the topic. As you know, Momentum HSS is a podcast about the humanities and social sciences broadly. These sets of disciplines and fields are often set apart in common usage from the sciences or STEM fields, but I know that you endorse a different understanding of the place of the social sciences with regard to STEM. What is that? Thank you. Well, it's really exciting to to talk with you today about this topic that I'm really passionate about. Social science and behavioral science, we argue, or I argue, are part of the S in STEM. Um, And that's for a variety of reasons. One is very practical. Um, The federal government funds science, it funds STEM, and it funds social science uh, alongside, uh, particularly at the National Science Foundation, Social and behavioral science is included in that STEM definition, and so we consider social science as part of the S in STEM. Uh, that being said, though, uh, there are folks within the disciplines themselves that uh, may not agree with that. Certain disciplines, whether it's linguistics or anthropology or political science, are quite split between the social sciences and the humanities, um, largely due to their approach to the subject matter or institutional organizational uh, requirements, but we feel very strongly that there's nothing harder to study than humans, human behavior, and human systems, and that we can take a scientific approach to doing that. And so social science and STEM are one and the same from where I sit. What do you see as the best way to understand the relationship between the social sciences and the humanities then? Yeah, so uh, it's interesting because, you know, I'm in Washington, D.C., and inside the Beltway, you don't see as many distinctions as you would inside the academy. So, you know, at universities, researchers are 
identify as a humanist or a social scientist, and they feel very strongly about that. But when it comes to policymaking, um, advocating for research funding for social science and humanities, there really isn't much of a split there. And that's simply because policymakers have to stay at a higher level. They don't really dig into the details of one discipline or, or another. So we have to um, be sensitive to the fact that the folks that we're advocating on behalf of often see themselves differently than how we might science or the humanities to a policymaking or a funding audience. Now, there's definitely a difference between intellectual or theoretical frameworks. And on the other end, the, the, where you focus on more like culturally, where folks and their, their values, their needs, concerns more align. Yeah, that's true. You know, culture is an interesting thing. And um, I think it's easy for uh, all things, not just sciences and humanities and different disciplines to be sort of cast in a certain light. But I think when, you know, the lay public hears the word culture, they don't assume that's part of science. They may think it's part of humanities if they even know, know what humanities are. These are these are terms that largely, I think, struggle from branding issues and a lack of understanding of what they are and what their contributions are to understanding the human condition at large. You're executive director of COSA, an organization comprised of more than 100 member organizations. In, in what areas do the needs of such a diverse coalition come together most naturally? That's really, really interesting because it, it changes uh, depending on, you know, what's happening in the world. Um, at COSA, we, we represent all of the social and behavioral sciences. And yeah, a lot of that means there's overlap with the humanities. And so on its surface, you wouldn't think that the economists have uh, a lot of overlap with the sociologists or the linguists or the psychologists. But at the end of the day, what we're trying to figure out is why humans act the way they do and why relationships take the forms that they do and what policymaking means to all of this. And so at the highest level, uh, our disciplines, while individually quite diverse, uh, do have a lot uh, of commonality. If you drill down a little bit, though, it's amazing to see when something happens like COVID-19, all of the disciplines coming together to answer that question from a different perspective. And so we've been able to sort of track that over the last several months and highlight the different ways that the economists and the sociologists and the criminologists are all trying to tackle this problem, but from their unique vantage point. And I think that is really a message we try to, to, to hit home to policymakers to say, uh, there are many ways to solve a problem like COVID or Ebola or natural disaster response. And you really need to take the suite of all of these disciplines together to really understand the whole picture. In, in which areas do the needs, concerns, and often competing interests of these groups diverge? So rarely, interestingly. Um, I think as you would dive deeper into the disciplines and into individual studies, perhaps there would be some diverging of, of interests. But we don't see that all that much. Uh, It's a sort of a blessing and a curse that the social sciences can be um, a bit siloed. Uh, It's one Mm -hmm. of the areas in academia 
where there are still stovepipes, where there are still departments of psychology and departments of political science, even though there's this larger move to more interdisciplinary programs and schools and studies. And so on the one hand, it's perhaps a little bit outdated to still be structured that way. On the other hand, the social and behavioral sciences tend to stay in their lane. So you don't see a lot of sort of competing interests uh, among the different disciplines when tackling a given challenge, even though that challenge like COVID or something else could be common among them. They really do stay within their own areas of expertise. So what do you find are the most challenging issues to to bring folks together on across this coalition? Yeah, so our main challenge is, uh, which I alluded to earlier, a bit of a branding challenge. So we exist at COSA primarily to ensure that the federal government, that Congress, understands that research in the social sciences are worthy of taxpayer support through grants at NIH or NSF or Department of Education or elsewhere. Uh, So that's sort of our, our main focus. But how we get there and how we make that case is really a communication thing, a strategy, a branding thing. So often Mm -hmm. when I go in and I talk to a member of Congress, I say, you may not know, congressman or staff person, how much social science is happening in this office around you every day, from the way folks communicate to why your phone is designed the way that it's designed, um, to the political science behind these institutions in which you work. And once we explain it that way, we explain that this isn't, you know, social studies class in elementary school, but that there's very scientific approaches here and it helps elucidate the human condition. They're easy converts at that point, but it's all of these assumptions that already exist in people's minds on what social science is. The humanities is the same way. Science in general can be that way as well. And certainly you have a big role in working with legislators also making this case to the general public, those things are not often, not always the same thing. The public perception and the perception of policymakers. What do you see as maybe the differences there, the disconnects and how those groups view the social sciences? Yeah, the the public angle is is hard. I mean, that is a big question. How do you get the public to move on any issue. Policymakers and the public, though, you have to understand that if they don't have a background themselves in social science or the humanities, it's because they chose not to. Um, This whole idea of the deficit model, if we just explained it more, if we just educated the public or policymakers more about the social sciences and how the science is done, they would just agree with us that this is worthwhile. And that's not really that's not really fair. If they wanted to enter a science career, they would have entered a science career. So assuming that they want to learn something new is not fair for us to put on them. And so in a lot of ways, our approach, it's the same when we're talking about the general public and policymakers, because we need to, first and foremost, meet our audience where they are. So what that means is when we go to the Hill and we talk to congressional offices, Yes, we're an advocacy group. Yes, we go in there because we have something to ask of them, like increased funding for social science. But our approach is to say, what are the challenges facing your office, your constituency, your state or your district? Because chances are there is some social science happening in your district, in your local university that can help tackle that problem. So let's get to the heart of that. So with Congress, it's a very um, it's a very practical approach to get them the information they need 
the the public question it's a similar approach. You need to meet them where they are and just telling them about cool social science isn't going to change any hearts and minds. You know, we work primarily with policymakers because that's a lever we can control a little, a little easier than the general public, which is really hard. Let's focus in on, on research funding for a few minutes here. uh, Perhaps the most common narrative holds to a mid 20th century boom in the social sciences and public funding with particular declines in the late and post-Cold War period, and with more or less declining funding ever since. Is that simple narrative true, or how would you correct or problematize it? I would say that's fairly accurate. I would say it's it's similar trend lines for science in general, with the exception of of certain areas that get prioritized over time, such as you know computer science over the recent decades. In medical research over the last decade and a half or so. But yeah, I would say generally that narrative is is true. Uh, I think anytime you see a, a post-war or post-major event uh, de-escalation of some kind, funding for science tends to follow. So one can just expect, should we ever get out of the, the coronavirus crisis right now, which is you know, resulting in the pouring of lots of new research dollars into biomedical research and vaccine development, what happens to all of those investments once we're on the other side of this? You're going to see a similar, you know, decline, just as we saw a boom um, over the last several months. So, yeah, I would say that that's true. What What is um, most worrisome from uh, where someone like where I someone like I sits is when there are priorities set among the disciplines or among the areas of research themselves. So prioritizing um, uh, one discipline over the social sciences or even within the social sciences, de-emphasizing political science while supporting psychology, for example, that's really problematic and not helpful to, to our science enterprise, which is based on supporting the best science and letting the results uh, sort of pave the future. Following up on that, do you feel like there are certain areas of the social sciences that get less attention through funding? Are are there particular areas that really need more? Um, I would say all of the areas need more. (laughs) If you just look (laughs) at very politic answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, also very practically speaking, uh, if you look at the funding sources for social science at certain government agencies, we are a fraction of the total research budgets. Um, National Science Foundation, for example, social and behavioral science accounts for about four to five percent of the entire yeah. budget. Yeah. Yeah. Although it's it's what it's about two thirds of the funding for basic research at universities overall. That's right. In these areas. That's right. And so that's a really stark argument, and one that that works with policymakers from time to time. While so while it's true that the social sciences are underinvested in general. Uh, occasionally, there are disciplines that are called out politically, unfortunately, um, and sort of held up as examples of wasteful government spending. Uh, notably, we see this with political science, and you could expect that policymakers, members of Congress, politicians may not like to fund research that shows how the sausage gets made in the political mm-hmm. sphere. Um, so that's often a political football. Also, any research that has to do with other cultures or other countries outside of the U.S. because there's a lack of understanding about how studying other cultures might help 
the human condition in the U.S., for example, or the human condition overall. So it's less that, unfortunately, that uh, policymakers love, say, psychology and give all the money to psychology. That's not happening. But um, but it's more that they attack other disciplines as a way to sort of show um, that they're, they're hawks for taxpayer dollars and they're protecting the public in some way from wasteful spending. Yeah, you, you probably have a number of examples where you've seen politics impacting and influencing funding agendas. Yes, definitely. Um, and, and sadly, it's become a bit of a partisan issue, which makes no sense. I mean, STEM, you know, post-war, the, 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 the support from policymakers that has led to the doubling of the National Institutes of Health over several years, the investment of STEM at large, um, those have always been nonpartisan or bipartisan issues. STEM in general is a very nonpartisan, bipartisan issue. It's a winner on the Hill. Everyone, regardless of party, wants to say that they support science. But unfortunately, when it gets into certain areas of science, we've seen this with climate change, certainly, it becomes a partisan issue. And I think it's because then you start straddling the scientific research and the rigor on one hand and any potential policy implications on the other hand. When science starts to influence policy, all of a sudden the science itself becomes partisan in some ways in the minds of many. So yeah, we have lots and lots of examples of research grants. Sadly, there are efforts in the Hill, on the Hill all the time to sort of rein in wasteful spending. And they, they do that by identifying individual grants at certain agencies and essentially making fun of them on, on the House floor or in a press release. Sometimes members of Congress go on late night television shows and say, can you believe we're funding this? This is so silly, where they're essentially just mischaracterizing the research, which gets back to this whole branding problem issue. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned climate change as an example. Mm. Uh, vaccination mm. would be another one. Even some of the issues around the current uh, COVID-19 crisis. What's interesting is that these are seen clearly as not just scientific or medical matters, but often highly politicized and maybe now widely recognized publicly as having deeply social and behavioral aspects. Mm -hmm. As strange as it may sound, maybe this is a good thing for the social sciences, that there's a greater understanding that the social aspects of science matter very much. It's true. Uh, we do strangely have moments in time where the social sciences are not only appreciated, but actively sought. So the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is part of the White House, uh, has been very supportive of social science for a while, but now are utilizing social behavioral science and scientists more than ever to try to tackle this, this problem. Um, and so similarly, uh, you know, the Ebola crisis or, or, or racial unrest, which we're also seeing right now, um, that is recognized as a moment for social science, which, which shows that, you know, the branding problem isn't 100% broken. There's a little nugget there um, in the minds of, of some who understand that at certain points in time, the social sciences have something um, to contribute in these areas. So it's really, it is really interesting um, the challenge then is holding on to this momentum, making sure that we're not cast 
or typecast in some way, as our science can only help in these very specific areas. But I will say, you know, shame, shameless plug, um, we have a blog series called Why Social Science, and it's whysocialscience.com, um, where we talk once a month about why social science is important to everybody. Everyone should care. And they're written in very layman's terms, but by people who are either conducting the research or who benefit from the research. And since about March, we've been highlighting stories related to COVID, why COVID is a social science problem. Our latest piece that uh, came out earlier this week is all about how you won't solve the COVID problem without social science until you have a vaccine. That was the same thing with, with the Ebola crisis. It is first and foremost understanding culture, understanding transmission, understanding networks and people's behavior. And you could develop as many vaccines as you want, but until you tackle why we as humans function the way we do, the, the Ebola example worked really well on the Hill because folks didn't understand that culturally, when someone dies, you bring them into the home, you bathe them, um, you dote on, on the body, uh, and the transmission rates speak for themselves once you do that. And so if you want to stop something like that or like COVID in its tracks, tracks, it's social and behavioral change that will do that. We were talking a moment ago about the uh, amount of funding, the proportion of funding coming from the National Science Foundation for the Social Sciences do you think that that situation makes the social sciences particularly vulnerable, maybe having all their eggs in one basket here in terms of funding? Yes and no. So, um, you know, the National Science Foundation is the, the greatest funder, but practically speaking, it is the only place in the federal government that makes sense to support all of the social and behavioral sciences under one roof. NSF is the basic science agency. So we're talking about basic science and the fundamental understanding um, theories behind political science or sociology. So it makes sense that, that, that a lot of that is happening at NSF. A lot of similarities can be made to chemistry or physics. NSF is the home for that research. Still, uh, we could use a lot more funding. And once you get into other agencies that tend to be more mission-focused agencies, um, so NIH, for example, funds a good deal of, of social and behavioral science research, but it's very focused more on the behavioral end of the spectrum, on psychology, on healthy behaviors. Um, Department of Education, as you might imagine, Department of Defense, they all care about and fund social science. It's very specific to their individual mission. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, having, having social science primarily housed within NSF definitely puts a target on its back. And that is where the attacks from certain policymakers has been in the NSF pot of funding. Um, but it also makes it easy to defend in a lot of ways because we can say, hey, once we sell you on the fact that this research is worthwhile, here is one place in the government where you can support it. And by eliminating this pot of funding, the, the impacts to the two-thirds of the research happening at universities in your districts, congressperson, are tremendous. So it's, you know, it's a double-edged sword in a lot of ways. What do you think is the right mix in terms of support needed for basic versus applied research? That is um, a tough one. <laughs> we, I think we all appreciate calls from um, those outside the scientific world, whether they're policymakers or the public, um, to want cures, to want 
um, solutions to engineering challenges, you know, a misunderstanding that there's basic science underscoring all of these things that we see, that we wouldn't have our, our tablets and our smartphones if it weren't for the basic science that happened 50, 60 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a hard argument to make to policymakers uh, or the public. And, and I describe it often as the basic science is the scaffolding that builds up over time. It's never quite done. You're adding to this sort of pot of knowledge over time. Um, and hopefully down the road, some unforeseen uh, advancement comes from that. Um, but that's not to be expected. Now, selling that is a lot harder. I think we can get folks to understand, okay, there are all these scientific steps that need to be taken to get to this big thing. But selling the fact that basic science isn't meant to have an endpoint is, is tough. We, we all want uh, to see you know, the widget being created at the end, especially if we're paying millions and millions of dollars of you know, taxpayer support to get to that point. So to your question about the right balance, well, COSA and our partners in the science advocacy community tend to advocate primarily for basic science. Um, we think it's most at risk um, because of this lack of understanding. Um, but also as you get into more applied or translational research, you start getting into you know, the interests of these mission agencies that I was talking about earlier, um, picking winners and losers among you know, health or national security, where we want the science to sort of stand for itself. Now, a big caveat to that is in order to sell basic science and the uh, basic research and the social sciences to a policymaking audience, you often have to use examples of applied or translational research. So, mm -hmm. you know, going back to COVID, um, we're talking about the ways that our disciplines are helping COVID. That's a very applied argument. Um, but again, made possible by these sort of basic fundamental questions that have been answered over, you know, decades and decades. We're used to talking about funding and financial support in terms of particular problems or research proposals. But what about infrastructure? What do you think about the needs perhaps for digital infrastructure around analyzing and sharing big data dissemination of research outputs, maybe open access, ways to engage publics and policymakers. Yeah, infrastructure is at the heart of so many of these issues. Um, it's, it's especially true when there are times like, like these with COVID and we're seeing uh, emergency funding legislation being supported in a bipartisan way and, and money being fueled to states and to research agencies. Yeah, we need to know the answer to research questions right now, but we also need to build up the infrastructure that allows those things to happen over time. So for the social and behavioral sciences and the humanities, the infrastructure is so broad and it's not what most would think of when you hear the word infrastructure. It's not the satellites in the skies. It's not the mm -hmm. expensive telescopes. In a lot of ways, infrastructure is people. You know, cutting funding for fellowship programs um, by essentially shutting down the pipeline of talent, you're hurting the future infrastructure of science. And that's especially true for the social sciences. We don't have the big machinery. Um, we're, we're using computational approaches more and more now. But aside from that, it's the people, it's the intellectual infrastructure that's really important. So when we see cuts 
to sort of scientific workforce, pots of funding across federal agencies or even within universities and institutions. That is really frightening. There are other traditional forms of infrastructure that are important to the social sciences. I can't speak to open open science, open data too much. That's a bit of a, a political football in science in general, um, especially in my membership, because some of our members are universities and some of them are scientific societies, which are who are who are publishers. <laughs> so we have the researchers and the publishers within our membership. But open federal data is a big issue. Having safe yet accessible access to you know federally collected data in a way um, that allows the research to take place, whether it's census data or IRS data or what, whatever. Um, there are several movements right now to open up the federal government in the safest way possible to make those things easier and more cost efficient. Um, and so we'll see where that goes. But usually when there are times of crisis like we're in right now, to everyone's credit, there is a lot of thought given to, okay, how can we fix the system? How can we create systems so that we have better access to the data we need now in the future. I think we're, we're seeing um, there's not enough information about how data is collected at states. States can collect data in very different ways. And when you have a pandemic, we need to have more standardized ways of, of understanding the data so that we can solve the problem. So uh, infrastructure is a huge one. I think it's having a moment, but getting those investments over the finish line is, is always a challenge. To what extent do you think needs in the infrastructure area are shared with other scientific communities, or to what extent do the social sciences need their own structures of support? Yeah, that's that's a tough one. I think there there is a lot of commonality, uh, especially around um, you know sharing data sources and and access. Um, but a real challenge for the social sciences is getting what our researchers need from the principal federal statistical agencies of the United States. So there are 13 federal statistical agencies around the government, Census Bureau, there's some in the uh, Department of Education, the Department of Agriculture, and these are independent offices or agencies that are meant to be sort of the honest broker of data and statistics. They collect data, they curate the data, they put out um, reports on the data to study different parts of the U.S. system, whether it's agriculture or education or population through the census. And those data are always uh, a little bit at risk. We're seeing that a lot these days in the current administration, unfortunately, with questions about citizenship in the census, with sort of the devaluing of data in general. So this is a really huge challenge for the social sciences because our, our researchers rely on these data. They rely on these statistical agencies um, not having political influence. They're supposed to be kind of like offices of attorneys general. They're supposed to be there in an agency to just put out the facts and be immune from any partisan mm -hmm. or political pressure. And that's become increasingly challenging in, in this political environment, unfortunately. So, um, yeah, having um, the federal data and statistics being held to the standard that they need to be held to and protected um, is, uh, you wouldn't think, but it's a huge infrastructure challenge for the social sciences that others in physics or biology don't have to deal with. Mm -hmm. 
There was a long period, Wendy, and maybe we're still in it, where many social scientists felt like NSF and other STEM funders were starting to take the social sciences side a bit more seriously. For example, requiring social sciences participation in large interdisciplinary grant proposals, but that their their STEM colleagues in non-social sciences fields were still less than understanding the fact that they had their own research agendas to pursue, that their social research is robust. I imagine we both heard many stories from social science researchers of them being approached very late in the proposal process by scientists or engineers looking for them to simply market or foster adoption of the scientists' amazing new technology, treatment, or solution. You nailed it. Uh, That has historically been the challenge, being brought in late in the game to essentially sell the widget once the widget is created. We see examples of why that hasn't been successful Um, year after year, um, GMOs, were developed, and then then it was realized that the public has a real problem with genetically modified organisms. And if social science was brought in at the beginning of that research, maybe we have a, a better understanding of how the public would have um, accepted or not accepted, or how to even develop things that would be palatable to uh, to a public audience. So yeah, uh, I think these things happen in stages. The federal agencies were, were, as you said, starting to realize that social science has a lot to add. That's good. It's progress. But social science shouldn't be seen as additive to everything else. We shouldn't be brought in at the last minute. Now I think we're, we're getting to the next step, which is social science being seen for its value on its own. We're seeing more initiatives now, not nearly enough, but we're getting there, where social science is at the center in collaborating with other uh, other sciences that way um, and more bi-directionally instead of being added on at the end. Uh, that's, I think, uh, it's going to be a tough one to, um, to tackle overall. In general, I think we do have challenges um, with respect to other uh, sciences in the STEM field really respecting social science, but we're getting there. Part of our work is working in, in coalition with other science groups around town, the engineers and the physicists and so on. Um, And at least at that level, the colleague level here in Washington, there is a lot of appreciation, especially in this moment. We are more popular than ever at COSA uh, and being (laughs) being approached by other disciplines for helping their disciplines solve these problems because we know people and their disciplines don't. So we're getting there, but there's still a lot more work to be done. You know, there's definitely been a trend, you know, certainly within the academy, um, within research generally towards greater and greater interdisciplinarity to solve these big problems that you're talking about. What does this mean, that that trend, do you think, mean for the traditional disciplines of the social and behavioral sciences? That has been a, a, a point of tension, I will say. Um, not only are our universities and research institutions becoming more interdisciplinary, even structuring their schools around challenge areas or topics, uh, instead of a school of, uh, say, chemistry, there's now, you know, biochemistry and its relation to, you know, some, some great challenge. In the social sciences, I think we're one of the very last areas of STEM, as I said at the beginning, 
to be quite siloed in terms of how in, in the academy, how we're structured. There's still individual um, programs for the different fields and funding agencies tend to follow that structure, namely NSF. Now, NSF is uh, over the last year or so has been trying to move beyond that. They see how other sciences um, are moving um, more progressively uh, towards sort of understanding grand challenges and thinking about things in a more interdisciplinary way. Um, and that has been met with a lot of resistance in the social sciences, um, partially because institutions, universities are still structured in a very siloed way. Um, and so if you uh, recast political science as something that doesn't use the word political science, for example, what does that mean? What, what message is that sending to political scientists? So this is fraught in, in a lot of ways, but it's worked for other other disciplines for other areas of STEM, but uh, there's definitely going to be some growing pains as as this moves forward. Um, unfortunately, our, our, our scientists have been a little bit slow to um, move ahead, and their concerns are real, but still, it seems to be where things are headed, and uh, we're, we're not quite on board yet. If you could cast yourself a decade or two into the future, where do you think the social sciences will be? What will the, the systems and the cultures look like? Whew. So that's a tough one because there are so many moving parts. I Maybe do... give me your, your best and your worst <laughs> possible futures. <laughs> uh, all right. I'll start with the worst. So the, worst, right. <laughs> the worst would be if, uh, and I think this is a possibility, that we're in a position where social science is seen not necessarily as sort of additive to the other sciences, but we're but we're cast almost entirely as an applied or a translational activity. That it becomes um, social science is you know the nudge unit. It's it's making people do things. Um, it's it's influencing behavior in sort of a more proactive way as opposed to understanding why we behave the way we do and trying to incentivize good, healthy behaviors, or etc. That would be very scary. Um, and I worry about social science being sort of co-opted as this sort of utility that can be used by different audiences to achieve an end as opposed to being seen as a science in and of itself. That's real dark. So I'll go to the, the happy version, which right. <laughs> um, <laughs> which I think if we can continue to build on the momentum that unfortunately we see every time there's a huge crisis and show that that the skill, the knowledge in our disciplines is applicable to understanding humans writ large, that we can turn this moment into a better understanding. Um, I think we could be in a really positive place that turns the, the the U.S. sort of federal government research enterprise on its head. It turns, you know, investment into really making a difference, but recognizing that basic science is part of that equation. I would love to see in, in future White Houses, um, for example, uh, more of a social science presence. I think in the last administration, we had a great science presence um, the White House science advisor was one of the very first appointments made by the last president, was sent, which sent an important message. Um, that position was essentially never filled by the current administration. But wouldn't it be nice that in 10 years in the future, we have a federal government that not only has a science advisor 
uh, whispering into the ear of the president, but a social science advisor whispering as well um, to really understand, okay, the high energy physics um, is, is, is really moving forward and we're understanding a lot about uh, the universe right now. But someone else there who can say, and here's what all of this means for the people. Um, I think that would be tremendously helpful. I think we could get there um, if we're careful about how we steward the next couple of years coming out of this crisis. All right, then. Wendy, apart from the easy answer of just more money, (laughs) if you were charged with designing a new system from the ground up for our country's approach to and funding for the social sciences, what would that look like? Oh, wow. That's hard. That's hard to say. Um, because I feel like, uh, you know, as, as a nation, as advocates, as a research community, we've allowed, you know, the funding agencies to shape how research is done. Um, mm-hmm. we've, we follow their structures, their grant proposals. Um, to be fair, um, NSF and NIH do a great job of not being specific about the research they're asking about. So they let it be investigator initiative initiated. Here are some great ideas I have as a researcher that I think you should fund. That's great. But I think the way that it's been structured over time, again, in, in silos, not you know, a very good record at all of being inclusive, uh, both in terms of researchers and underrepresented groups and research, but also in issues that underrepresented folks face a lack of mm-hmm. a lack of information there, research there in those areas, a lack of diversity in the sort of pools of people who are studied, of the communities that are studied, of people participating in clinical trials, for example. Um, and so, I would love to see a social science or science in general research environment that is really reflective of the community and doesn't necessarily answer questions for, uh, you know, the critical mass. So, you know, we'll solve this challenge for the average American, but actually do better by ways of, you know, the marginalized people and understanding why things are different for for them. Uh, I think it's, you know, COVID sheds light on the fact that there are different educational fallout for folks who are underrepresented, uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged, than there are for the quote-unquote average American. So all of the research that's happening to understand the educational impacts down the road of children affected by COVID is not going to be helpful to those who are already marginalized. So yeah, inclusivity, I think, is a, is a way that if we could go back and start over, that it would have a huge impact for, for everybody. Hmm. Aside from the issues that you work on directly, from your perspective, getting to see all of what's going on across these broad swaths of area of, of territory here. What do you see as the biggest needs for the social sciences overall? In other words, while it may not be in your wheelhouse, what do you think somebody should be working hard on to support the social sciences? What I would love to see, and it sounds a little bit silly, I would love there to be a public spokesperson out there for the social sciences. So, you know, (laughs) we all love the Big Bang Theory, but it's not lost on me when that show would poke fun at the social sciences from time to time. Now, that that one line in an episode may go 
completely unnoticed by everybody else. But there isn't a Neil deGrasse Tyson or a Big Bang Theory for the social sciences. There are no large ad campaigns that talk about why we need to understand people more. And so I would love to be able to crack this public piece of social science awareness and advocacy. We try a little bit to do that with some of our products and our Why Social Science activities, but it's such a huge case that you really need a vocal, visible person or entity out there who could take up that charge for us, which gets back to you know my earlier point about what if we had leadership the highest levels of our government about the value of social science. There really is just no one out there to open that floodgate for us to get folks to really understand. Do you think there's a native problem there? Like somebody can, you know, the average person can say, well, you know, I don't really understand how to do complex math or I really don't understand physics, but I'm a person. Uh, I live in society. I'm an expert on that. Yep. (laughs) That sums it up. That is at the heart, I think, of our um, our branding problem is the, you know, quote unquote, uh, common sense problem. I'll give you one example. One um, research grant that was picked on by a policymaker as being wasteful was a study. Um, the way they categorized it is uh, there's a child riding on a stationary bike uh, and he has sort of virtual reality equipment around him and he's riding the bike and people are studying um, to figure out went across the street. So that was picked on as, okay, well, my grandmother told me when I was a child, you look both ways and then you cross the street. Why are we putting millions of dollars into this research? Um, and you know what that does is it totally misses the, the point of the research, which is understanding why the brain is firing in the way it is. It's this decision-making processing. It's development of decision-making processing in children when there are certain things um, developed to help make those, um, those decisions. But by characterizing it in that in that way, it demeans the research itself. So yeah, sort of the relatability of of our sciences uh, is, I think, the central challenge. We don't see similar attacks on physics or chemistry or biology. These uh, reports that policymakers put out on wasteful spending almost never include those grants. Because they're hard to understand. I wouldn't bother, mm-hmm. you know, picking on them. I have no idea. So yeah, that's a challenge. The closer you get to human beings, the more problematic it can be to sort of justify the value because it's relatable. Well, Wendy, this has been a fabulous conversation. I'd like to ask you just one more question before we wrap up. And I'm not even going to pretend that it's an especially fair question, all right? <laughs> but tell me this, if you would. What question are you glad I didn't ask you? What do you feel is most uncertain to you about the path forward for the social sciences or what threat do you feel that the social sciences are least prepared as of yet to strategically address? I'm glad we didn't talk too much about the partisan nature of social science. I alluded to it earlier that that social science in particular has become a partisan issue because certain certain policymakers, namely on the right, um, who tend to be budget hawks, like to identify wasteful spending. But science and social science should never be seen as a partisan issue. Now, that being said, there are certain disciplines within the social sciences that lean differently on the partisan spectrum itself. Mm-hmm. So 
one of the reasons why COSA has to stay really high level in, in our advocacy is because our membership represents on one end, very conservative economists. On the other end, very activist sociologists. And if it were up to either one of them, we would be working on other policies um, and other legislative proposals that lean one way or the other. So while science, basic science in particular, should never be partisan and used to attack the other side, it does um, occasionally. And a lot of that strife often comes from within our disciplines itself. I'm not saying that scientists shouldn't be activists and shouldn't work on what they care about. It's just a problem that I don't think we'll ever solve because you are um, a person first and then you are also a scientist. And sometimes those things converge. And that's really hard to navigate as someone who's trying to sell science um, and get more funding for science and trying to argue that science for science sake is good and that it doesn't have to be a partisan issue. So thanks for not asking that. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Thanks for answering it anyhow. (laughs) Wendy, thank you so much. This has been a delightful conversation, an illuminating conversation. I really, I really appreciate your time and your candor. I appreciate you shedding some light on these topics. And I I wish everyone well, and I hope everyone's staying healthy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode. I'm your host, Darby Orcutt. Be sure to subscribe to Momentum HSS on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen to your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and share it with a friend. And until next time, keep up the momentum. Momentum.